It's an exciting time to be in Unamagi, Cape Breton. We're having an economic renaissance. You talk to the union reps, you talk to the industry, you talk to developers. Sydney is happening right now. Sydney has really raised the bar. Throughout this series, we'll show you why there's never been a better time to invest in Cape Breton. This will be the catalyst of economic development and probably one of the biggest opportunities that Nova Scotia has ever seen. I'm your host, Michelle Sampson. Imagine that you're strolling down Sydney's waterfront boardwalk on a bright summer day. You'll pass by downtown hotels, a busy ice cream shop, and a marina. Beyond the sailboats more than that marina, your eye might be drawn to a giant fiddle towering over a curved building clad in glass. Or it might sweep over a cruise ship so big that it makes the big fiddle look child-sized. For most of us, this is how we picture Sydney Harbour. But that only blows over the surface of this water body that's 16 and a half meters deep. If I was a betting woman, I'd bet that there are more cruise passengers, more business activity, and more behind-the-scenes planning than you can fathom. In this second episode of the Invest in Cape Breton podcast, we're covering all of the above. But before diving in, let's take a moment to acknowledge this episode's sponsor, the Cape Breton Regional Municipality Regional Enterprise Network. CBRM-REN is a collaborative effort between the province of Nova Scotia through the Department of Economic Development, the Cape Breton Regional Municipality, and the Cape Breton Partnership. The CBRM-REN's areas of focus are rooted in two sources. The first is the CBRM's economic development strategy, entitled CBRM Forward. The second is the priorities of the province of Nova Scotia, including the Nova Scotia Loyal Program, innovation-driven green and sustainable business, and connecting Nova Scotians. All right, now let's ease into this exploration of Sydney Harbour by first grounding ourselves in what's going on there today. Marlene Usher is the outgoing CEO of the Port of Sydney Development Corporation, retiring after five years in the job. She knows the port inside and out. Here's her overview of what's on site and who's using it. The main assets are the docks in the pavilion we have two large piers, a 365-meter main dock, and we have the Liberty Pier, which finished construction around 2018. And that also can host a vessel of same length at the main dock because of its design. I call it a cruise port. And that's because it's our main line of activity. It's our main revenue generation. But having said that, it's much more than that. In addition to crews, we also host all of the tankers that come to Cape Breton to deliver fuel for our island. We have Imperial Oil. They have a tank firm adjacent to our port. So there's a pipeline that runs from the pier to the tank firm. So we have 50 or 60 tankers that come during the entire year as fuel is needed to supply the tank firm. We also had the Coast Guard. It's more ad hoc. They would come once or twice a month and use their wharf to do either training exercises or pick up supplies or do repairs. As Marlene mentioned, cruise ships are the main line of activity for the port. It accounts for 75% of their revenue. So to make a strong first impression on these cruise passengers, the port has invested in facilities to accommodate them. We have a cruise pavilion, and we have the world's largest fiddle. Who wouldn't love that? The pavilion itself, it's a tremendously beautiful building. It's large. It can host large events. 
It also has a lot of entrepreneurs and shops within the pavilion. We've often heard from cruise lines that our site is probably one of the nicest cruise pavilions in Atlantic Canada. In peak season, we have 28 businesses that are here that is niche, high-end, beautiful shopping. It's labeled as shot the fiddle, and it's a great experience. We also have crafters. When cruise lines are in, our main hall is filled with 40 plus crafters who also do high-end products. On cruise days, the ships are docked for at least eight hours, sometimes more than that. The passengers fill up the pavilion and wander into downtown to shop and eat. But you might be surprised to learn that they're spending money way beyond Sydney's city limits. For that, you can thank the fleet of tour operators. They have a variety of tours, such as the Miners Museum, the Bell Museum, the Fortress of Lewisburg, the Cabot Trail. Maybe not the entirety, but they definitely go to the deck and go beyond. At times, they have done the entire trail. Depends on how long the year. But they could actually go golfing if they wished. Some of our tours have been recognized as some of the best in all of the region. And a lot of passengers will come and they'll take a taxi and do a private tour. When people come to Sydney, they want to know more about Cape Breton. And they have heard a lot about Cape Breton because of its notoriety and being a beautiful first-class island. It's won many awards as a destination. The same assets that draw the cruise ships also draw relatively smaller vessels, including sailboats and super yachts, which, depending on their size, can be accommodated at the port or at the adjacent marina. Landlubbers are welcome at the cruise pavilion, too. Marlene says lots of locals and visitors come to shop and eat. As you can imagine, the pandemic brought all of this to a crashing halt for a few challenging years. Fortunately, cruise travel has bounced back, and 2023 is set to be a banner year for the Port of Sydney. This year, we will have 115 calls, mostly in the months of September, October, but also in May, June, July, and August. So that's good news for our stakeholders. They're going to see in excess of 220,000 people come to our island. That's a lot of people. People that are here to see the beauty of the island, to spend money and to enhance really our business. But for the port itself, that will mean we will have the best year financially in the history of the port. I think what we have done is we've raised the profile of the port of Sydney. We certainly have enhanced our destination for cruise. If you look at where we started, we were maybe third or fourth in terms of growth. And now we're really second only to Halifax meaning that our cruise growth, we've surpassed New Brunswick, St. John, and Charlottetown. And I'm not undermining their port. They have wonderful ports and, and great cruise destination, but Sydney has really raised the bar. And if you think about Sydney and Halifax, we as a province have really blown it over the water. We would be a cruise powerhouse in terms of provincial ranking. And Sydney's been a big part of that, and we've heard that directly from the cruise lines. The port already has plans for the extra money coming in this year. The pandemic highlighted the danger of relying on cruise ships for 75% of their revenue, so they used the downtime to reconsider the port's future. That was a very tough time for the port. We had two consecutive years 
without our main line of revenue. We had a lot of time to do planning and we talked about our site and what could be. And that's when we developed some plans for infrastructure, including a fisherman's cove, an urban market, enhancements to the marina, and really plans to develop along the boardwalk. Similar to the Port of Halifax, which has, in my mind, one of the most loveliest waterfronts in terms of the infrastructure and boardwalk and all of that. We would like to be not a Halifax, but we want to be more than what we are today in terms of offerings to the public so that the public and tourists and crews, that it's foremost of their mind when they come to Sydney that they need to go to the waterfront. But to do that, you do need infrastructure. So we have developed detailed plans and we've gone with even to geotech and to next phase. So now we're in the process of trying to raise funds so those projects can be implemented. One thing I've learned from my experience, governments are willing to invest, but they want to see your money as well. So the port will go to these organizations and say, look, we've had a good year. We put some money away and we want to invest in the port and we want you to be a partner. It's going to be an economic generator of 60 to 70 million within our local community. And that's being conservative. From all this, you can see that the Port of Sydney is a major player in Sydney Harbour. But it isn't the only one. I asked Marlene about the port's commercial neighbours. We had Duncan Cole and Provincial Energy Ventures. They have a site next door that they uh, transship coal. So that's important. Other users, as I mentioned, the Coast Guard, and they have a, a educational facility across the harbor, and they do a lot of training in the harbor with their vessels. We also have Sidport, where there's a town located, and there's barges and a lot of marine repair. North Sydney, you have ship repair at a private enterprise over there, and we have Marine Atlantic. I mean, Marine Atlantic sails every day, twice a day, and really it provides that highway connection to Newfoundland. So it's a critical piece of infrastructure. So there are many users of Sydney Harbour, but more could be accommodated. Lots more. Our harbour is tremendously underdeveloped in the sense that there aren't many ports on the eastern seaboard, including the U.S., where there's large tracts of land that are portside and undeveloped. It's unheard of. So if you couple that, large tracts of land in our location, which is the first call off of the Great Circle Route, close proximity to Europe, it's just a tremendously strategic site. In addition to that, I think with the Dredge Project, with their second birth, our Liberty Pier, and with the navigation aids being installed this year, we now have a port that is ready for commercial development outside of crews, and we have been advocating and have raised the profile of that over the last several years. So if we are able to, at the port, bring together services like updated navigation aids, tug service, international ways, ensure that any dredging is looked after, then that the harbor is surveyed, I think having those types of things here will attract business like Novaport, because I think Novaport, especially with this offshore wind opportunity, is really poised 
to have something happen within, you know, months rather than years. It's a private sector project, but we've recognized right from the start the benefits that it could bring to our harbor and to the port itself. So we we are big supporters of Nova Port in terms of trying to make sure that they have a competitive environment with which to attract the businesses to make their projects successful. In my mind, it's nothing but positive. The potential is endless. I think you'll see as large projects start construction, it's just going to take off in terms of the development outside of that. As Marlene hinted, Sydney Harbour is poised to be ground zero for several major projects. Among them, Novaport is the biggest. To go a lot deeper and get an insider perspective of that project, we talked to Novaport's Vice President of Operations and Corporate Development, Kathleen Yurchison. Novaport is a greenfield port development located in the Sydney Harbour. It's been a development that has been active for give or take about 15 years. About 10 years ago, Albert Barbushi, so the CEO of Novaport, took over the file and established an exclusive agreement with the CBRM, who are the owners of the land, to develop the port. So it was a container terminal development. And prior to that, there was a local group of hardworking individuals that were responsible for kickstarting this entire development idea. They were the group that uh, really leveraged the federal government to dredge our harbor and our navigational channel to 16 and a half meters, which was kind of the first big step in the port development. And with the leadership of Albert and Chief Terry Paul, member to First Nations as an equity partner in the development, we have made some exceptionally exciting progress. I think the biggest update is that we have moved away from container. Container has always been reliant on rail. And the rail line as of 2014 has become non-operational between Sydney and Port Hawkesbury. And that has been a challenge for us to secure a shipper and port operator because what we envision to be a 3.2 million TEU container terminal, which the industry has come back and said, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. You need rail. So when the offshore wind developer in the U.S. approached us about this opportunity, the first question that Albert asked them is, what about rail? Does this industry require that type of transportation? And the answer, the simple answer is no. So of course, we took a deep dive and it just fits. There's tremendous opportunity in offshore wind development and port infrastructure in the supply chain of offshore wind development is absolutely a critical piece to the success of the industry, the building of the industry. And Innovaport is perfectly positioned to supply and support that industry and support the targets and the province of Nova Scotia as they set out to build out their initial commitment of five gigawatts in Canadian waters. Because offshore wind is a new industry to Nova Scotia, it's not yet clear how we will affect our environment and other industries. To make sure we understand what we're getting into, in March of 2023, the Government of Canada announced that a new committee has been formed to assess the potential environmental, health, social, and economic effects of offshore wind in Nova Scotia. The committee includes our next guest, Steve Parsons. If the name sounds familiar, it might be because he's a Cape Breton Regional Municipality Councillor and the CEO of Escazoni Corporate and Economic Development. Both roles have given him insights into wind energy, commercial fisheries, and economic development within our First Nation communities. He'll be bringing all of these perspectives to the committee. With any new industry, there's always impacts. 
And I'm glad that the government put together an impacts benefit committee for a lot of different reasons. One would be fisheries, of course, because fisheries, it's major economic driver for our community. In fact, it certainly helped Escazoni come from a $40 million deficit 12, 15 years ago with deficit-free, a, a great balance sheet and money in the bank to invest. So that's a concern for us. So we will look at best practices, look at all the necessary research, in particular fisheries, social economic benefits, and technology generally across the board. It's areas that got to be researched, got to be understood, got to be applied to our neck of the woods, so to speak. And we got to make sure we do it right because this can determine a great future or could cause some potential detrimental effect on fisheries, for example. So we need to mitigate for that. Steve wants to be careful about the potential impacts of offshore wind without sounding alarmist. He notes that the industry may be new to Canada, but not to the rest of the world. It's already happening in the world. We're not reinventing the wheel here. The only thing has changed is turbines got bigger. We own turbines in the province of Nova Scotia today, but they're only two megawatts. The ones that will be offshore could be 15 to 20 megawatts. So these things are huge. And in saying that, a lot of work to be done before we jump in the industry. The committee has 18 months to complete its work. Here's what that's expected to include. We're working with all the different groups, be it Department of Energy, Department of Fisheries, NRCAN, local fishery groups, and so on and so forth. So due diligence certainly will happen. A lot will happen in the file of this year with community meetings where people can come and give their opinion and certainly their concerns. And we're going to take all that information, bring it together, look at all the different uh, data sets that are out there and that's available to the committee. And we'll be going back to the ministers for some final recommendations. When it comes to consultation for these kinds of projects, Indigenous communities are often consulted and that's about it. For Novaport and its related projects, First Nations communities will be active partners on several fronts. Here's Kathleen again. Novaport is a partnership between Sydney Harbour Investment Partners, which is majority owned by Albert Babushi and member to First Nation. About four or five years ago, give or take, the opportunity for member two to invest was presented. And as many people know, when it comes to the story of member two and the leadership and vision of Chief Kerry Paul, he is a visionary and he sees the big picture and he believes in generational community wealth. And he has described this investment and this equity stake this project as a true example of economic reconciliation in action because it is a true investment of a community that believes in the bigger vision and believes in the benefit for all communities in the region and in the province. It's a wonderful partnership that we're incredibly proud of. And working with the member two team has been absolutely invaluable and they have brought enormous amount of expertise to the table. So that is something that we feel that has only strengthened this file. Just by way of example, I predominantly on a day-to-day -day basis work alongside Jennifer Dulesky, the VP of Business Development for Member 2, who works right alongside Chief Terry Paul and has been really a key person within Member 2 First Nation corporate or the corporate division that has spearheaded initiatives like the rink and the bowling alley and the seventh exchange development that's happening on the highway in Sydney now in member two. Jennifer has brought an enormous amount of experience and expertise to the file as it pertains to development. 
They support us on all aspects of the file, government relations, communications, strategy development, collaboration. So they are very engaged. Member two is invested and involved in Novaport, which is the Portlands. Behind the port will be 1,200 acres of industrial land called Nova Zone. Thanks to a unique partnership, every one of Nova Scotia's First Nations communities have an interest in Nova Zone. So in the environmental assessment process, we made a partnership with all 13 Indigenous communities across the province of Nova Scotia, and they took 20% interest in Nova Zone. And the agreement is that we are going to co-market and co-develop that, and they have a 20% interest in that entire development. An incredibly exciting opportunity to work with all communities. It's the first time that has happened in the history of Nova Scotia, where all 13 Indigenous communities have come together and partnered with a private sector development. Really, it's about sharing the benefit, sharing the economic opportunity that exists at this incredibly valuable asset with all communities across Nova Scotia and in partnership with our Indigenous communities. Nova Zone is envisioned to be developed to support port activity. We've always talked about that land being for logistics, transloading, picking, packing, cold storage, hydrogen production. So I think we'll see Nova Zone play a very complementary role to everything that we've been working on and everything that we will realize at Portside. Through his role with Escazoni First Nation, Steve Parsons was involved in the partnership. He expects the impact to be significant. The collective 13 bands own 250 of 1,200 acres of land. And what we did collectively is bring those lands together to be able for developers to buy them, purchase them, lease them. Once you say yes to a port and the shippers announce, then of course, now you got to build it out, infrastructure, capital. And I think you'll see a major employment in the actual billing out. Uh, it's estimated based on what's going to be needed. Thousands of people working, be it carpenters, electricians, iron workers, you name it. From the First Nations perspective, I see that as a major opportunity. This is a big project, and that's why the First Nations engaged in the land, and that's why we hope to realize some opportunities as far as employment for our band members as we go forward. Thanks to some smart moves in the last decade, Escazoni is set up for opportunities beyond the Nova Zone boundaries, too. One of the purchases that we made over the last 10 years was the former co-op food stores distribution center on Celtic Drive. Today, we use and house in there a bait storage facility, a freezer. A live stories for lobster. We can own 250,000 pounds of lobster at any given time. And we just introduced the Renewable Energy. It's the third largest solar panel ground mount system to provide for some of our energy costs. Well, that land, that building sits on 21 acres of land. And on that land, there's a spur line, the former rail spur line. One of the reasons, of course, looking, always looking to the future, the spur line could access the freezer. One of the most important assets in a container terminal is freezer capability. We have freezer capability of up to 10 million pounds with an addition, but we also have land to expand that. So in purchasing that property and working with container terminals, I put hand in hand and said, hey, there could be an opportunity for an expansion down the road with a partner. And our land is very few kilometers away from the potential Nova zone. Therefore, we can be in addition to Nova Zone for freezer capability. So we're looking at that from a fishery slash freezer capability of participating in containers shipped a terminal. So that's one of the reasons why. The other 
couple of opportunities that we're looking at. I can't mention today because we're still in negotiations, but they're all reflective of port development, port presence, being a part of it. And Iskazoni's chief and council wants to be a part of the future growth in, in Cape Breton. We're a growing community. We have over 5,000 people and uh, we're into wind energy, renewable energy. We have a First Nations renewable energy company today called Eskazoni Renewables. If companies want to keep their costs down, maybe the one that costs they want to keep down is their energy costs, of which we can provide, install commercial solar panels. We're lining ourselves up with opportunities that we know may or may not come, but you got to plan today. Prior planning prevents poor management, I always say. So it's getting in front of it, being progressive, and lining yourself up to create opportunities. And that's what we're doing in the port development is looking for those niche opportunities that we as a community can invest in, both in equity and labor. Shovels aren't in the ground yet, but there is a lot of interest from the kind of people who can actually make these projects happen. I asked Kathleen why they're so interested in Sydney. Firstly, it's our location. So we are located six miles off the Great Circle route. There is 147 million tons of cargo that pass by our port every single year which equates to thousands of vessels. So there's significant traffic coming out of the Suez Canal and passing directly by our port. So strategic location for one. Secondly, we have a dredged harbor, a deep water port. So we can accept the ultra large vessels. We're not limited to a certain size vessel or even in width, weight or height. We have no air draft restrictions. So we have no bridges. We're a naturally sheltered harbor, so as you make your way into the Novaport site and then further into Sydney, you'll see this sandbar, if you will, it's called South Bar, and it's this natural sandbar which allows our harbor to be sheltered, which is it's actually remarkable even when we experienced that significant Hurricane Fiona last year, almost our entire harbor was protected. We never saw any major damage. And also, I would say the port itself is basically next door to a highly densely populated urban center, the second largest urban center in all of Nova Scotia. So it doesn't impede or it's not landlocked by urban development. It's across the harbor. It's perfectly positioned to be next to employment, labor, access to labor, and also other economic development in and around the harbor, the commercialization of the harbor, whether it be on the same side of the port or across. We're also a foreign trade zone. So another clear advantage of our site. And I could go on and on, but Cape Breton really has, I think, everything that we need. Like we have an airport, we have post-secondary education established. We have a population that has room to grow, significant room to grow. And we have a very industrious type of people and community, and we're built on that history. So there's a lot of opportunity to leverage a lot of assets that we already have. Plus we have the asset of land. We have a lot of land. We say that we have around 2,000 acres as it sits within our portfolio today, but there's a lot of land around us that we can gain access to as we look to expand once we start building and growing. So it's just the opportunity for us is truly enormous, far more opportunity than you and I will see in our own lifetime of what we can do with this site. The most immediate and likely opportunity, what promises to get everything going, is a new partnership between Novaport and Denmark's Blue Water Shipping which was publicly announced in March of 2023. Blue Water is on board to build and operate Canada's first offshore wind marshalling port, right here in Sydney. 
It's a really exciting development. But for many, myself included, it begs the question, what exactly is an offshore wind marshalling port? Yeah, great place to start. So I'm going to describe it to you guys this way because we're listening and we can't see. So how can we really wrap our heads around this? When this industry started, give or take about 32 years ago, so the early 1990s, the birthplace was Denmark. So in and around that area of Europe. And when these turbines first were installed in the waters, they were generally speaking pretty small. So most all of the pieces that were then make up an offshore wind turbine fit into a standardized container of 20 foot or 40 foot equivalent unit. But since then, these components, the blades and the cells, the towers and so on and so forth have become absolutely mammoth. The turbines that would be built in the waters of Nova Scotia will be bigger than the Eiffel Tower. The middle of the turbine, which in the blades attached, so that's the powerhouse of the turbine, four times the weight of the Statue of Liberty. That's how heavy these things are. The blades are 300 feet long, right? They went from a three to four megawatt unit to moving towards a 15, 16 megawatt unit. So you obviously have to assemble these things and they come in different parts. There's five key components to an offshore wind turbine for fixed bottom. There's the monopile. So that's the foundation piece that goes directly into the seabed. Then there's the transition piece that connects the monopile to what we know as the tower. So the tower is that white tall piece that is what we know to be like the stand or the like main foundation that we see coming out of the water. And then at the very top of that is the nacelle. So that makes up the center of the turbine. And then you have your blades, four or five blades, six blades, depending on the turbine. So you need to put them together, obviously. So how do you assemble these? Back 32 years ago, these components could be shipped by a container. So what does that mean? That means that ports that existed during that time could accommodate the receiving and then the export or the marshalling of these components back out to sea to be assembled. Today, that's not the case. So that's why port infrastructure is basically the critical piece of supply chain that you need to have. And it needs to be substantial and engineered to be able to handle the absolute magnitude of these components, the weight and what have you. So to marshal a component, that means that the component could be manufactured at key. So we see that happen in Europe. That industry is being established in the U.S. right now and will be established in Nova Scotia. We believe at Novaport. Or they would be shipped from Europe or from a manufacturing facility, likely established overseas, to a port and then stored for a certain amount of time. There's all kinds of checks and balances that need to happen with that component, maybe from an assembly perspective or a maintenance perspective. Then when ready, that component would then go on an insulation vessel and then be marshaled, moved out to sea to be assembled in the water. So a marshaling port is for the storage, assembly, and then the movement to go out to sea to be constructed. It's a huge operation and it is a lot of jobs, <laughs> manufacturing and industrial jobs, but also a lot of opportunity within research and innovation and thought leadership and all that stuff as well. What's definite and like what is coming down the pipeline and when? Yeah. Timing is everything. We live in a world, especially now with all of our devices and everything that we want things done yesterday, but good things take time. And five gigawatts for Nova Scotia is like 20, $30 billion worth of development. 
And we know it's going to be bigger than that because that's not even factoring in hydrogen production, where this power is going, all the spinoff, what exactly is this power going to do and what is it going to provide, basically. But what's for sure? So, of course, we have the partnership of Blue Water Shipping, the most experienced and the largest offshore wind marshalling port operator uh, organization in the world. Fantastic partners, amazing people. We also know that we have the site. We're fully permitted. We have all long lead permitting in place. We are ready to build. We also know that Nova Scotia is steadfast in their vision to realize five gigawatts of offshore wind development in the next give or take seven years. But timing is everything. And there's a sequence and a method to all of this. So really for us, we envision that our port will also play a role in supporting the Northeast Atlantic U.S. in their development. So port infrastructure for them is critical. They're doing a lot of work and a lot of investment in port infrastructure now, but there are limitations in the U.S. And there's the Jones Act, there's port congestion, there's just inadequate land. You know, like Nova Port is a crown jewel, diamond in the rough, we've been told. There's no footprint like ours anywhere else on the East Coast of North America. Nowhere. They're traveling from all over the world and they just cannot believe we have this perfect footprint and enormous piece of land in the location that we do, in and around a population or whatever, we're not in the middle of nowhere. So now it's to secure the contracts, right? To find our first customers, which as a greenfield port, we don't have infrastructure today. So we're securing contracts saying, okay, you need this, but it's also working with their timelines. A lot of this power is going into the grids of these particular states, right? So they have power purchase agreements that they're negotiating and things of that nature. So there's a lot of variables So our next step is to start phase one. Our vision is to start with marshalling and that continues to evolve, which is really exciting. So we have been engaged with the industry for a lot longer than March 23rd, of course. Like when we were in a position to announce to the industry, there was a lot of work and conversations and meetings and traveling to really understand this industry and understand the opportunity that we can bring to Novaport and how we can support building this industry for our province. A lot of it is fluid, to be honest, but what's next is to build phase one, which is that give or take 200 acre footprint with a significant key wall in and around that 500 meter mark, which is a significant piece of civil infrastructure. And then once we get off the ground with that, we are pretty confident that a lot things will move quite quickly. Rumor on the street is that Novaport could have shovels in the ground in a matter of months, not years. I asked Kathleen if that was true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could start moving dirt tomorrow. The biggest thing that we need to do right now is get a tender package. We're going through that process right now with some engineers that have expertise in this field on a global perspective and really make sure that what we plan to build and what the industry needs is aligned. So it's not something that you can figure out in a matter of days or even weeks, right? One unique thing about our approach that hasn't happened anywhere else in the world, to our knowledge, is that we're designing a port with the operator in mind. So by designing the port with Blue Water Shipping that has 30-some years worth of experience in this space with key executives like Brian Sorensen. I mean, he's been with that company at the very beginning of the offshore wind industry. So he has seen this industry grow and he has seen, you know, the opportunities for more efficient operations and to create an environment that is really attractive to developers. So we are very focused on getting this right and 
not about just putting a shovel in the ground to get everybody excited, although we can't wait for that day. There's a lot of effort and minds that need to come together to make sure that we figure this out and also move in tandem with the province, for example, who has this aggressive target of five gigawatts, who is going to attract developers to our province and to spearhead the awarding of the seabed licenses in and around 2025. Those developers in turn are more or less investors. So how can we create an environment that they want to come and do business in Nova Scotia? And having a critical piece of infrastructure like Nova Port is going to play a significant role in that. The marshalling port is clearly the focus right now. But I wondered if the original vision of a container port is completely off the table. Nova Port has always been envisioned to be a multi-use port. We have not abandoned the vision of container. And we actually think that there's an opportunity to maintain container on this footprint while still facilitating marshalling port manufacturing and all of those things. We also have to remember too, like at any point, the infrastructure of a marshalling port is so robust in terms of the requirements for load factors of like basically handling those components. And it's over when you compare it to what a container terminal requires. So if we ever required to use our port facility to help facilitate other port activity that's not marshalling, we're ready. To get a feel of what a marshalling port could do for Sydney, in April 2023, a delegation of local leaders traveled to Blue Water Shipping's home port of Esberg, Denmark. I asked Kathleen, who was part of the trip, about her impressions of Esberg and whether she thinks Sydney can follow in its footsteps. The really cool thing about Esberg in Denmark is that they've also experienced the boom and bust of the fisheries and oil industries, and they have been creative in reimagining their port for its use. So they have become the energy capital of Denmark and one of Europe, if not Europe's largest offshore wind marshalling port. So they have really claimed their stake in the industry. There are many ports that do similar or support the offshore wind industry in and around Europe. But Esberg is really the hub. And that's how we see Novaport, because simply we have the footprint to be a hub. So when you go to Esberg, I mean, they have an operations and maintenance site, they have manufacturing, they have marshalling, and they also have other port activities as well. They have reefer, they have cold storage, things of that nature. So they are very much a multi-use facility as well, and they have really responded and become adaptable to the market and to the needs of the market, whether it be offshore wind or otherwise. They've capitalized on those opportunities, and they have revitalized their city. And let me tell you, it is a beautiful city. It is so gorgeous, so well-maintained. The people are incredible. The Danish people are actually quite similar to East Coast Canadians in terms of their humor and their lightheartedness and their hard work and their commitment to their community and to their families. And there's a lot of, lot of beautiful synergies between them and us. From an economic development standpoint, we can learn a lot from what they've been able to accomplish and the leadership at the port, at their municipal level, and really how their community has wrapped their arms around the industry of their port. It is the catalyst for economic development in and around that entire community. They are a university town, so they have one of the leading universities in the world, actually. They compete neck and neck with MIT, which is really interesting. So that's right in Esberg. And, and so there's a lot of really wonderful, interesting facts about this place. But 
I think what we all learned when we were there is, wow, we are way more similar than we are different. And what they've been able to accomplish in Esberg and how they position themselves within the entire industry within Europe is remarkable. And when we walked away from there, one thing that I believe, certainly I left feeling is this really is all possible and it's not a stretch, right? Like it takes time and Esberg has built this over the past 25 years. So it doesn't happen overnight. And it requires a lot of hard work and it requires a lot of vision. It requires a significant amount of investment, but it's all possible. Wow, that's so exciting. It gives me goosebumps. Um, back in June at Port Days, you moderated a panel discussion with Blue Water, Novaport, and Member2. What were some of the key takeaways from that discussion? Yeah, I think the biggest key takeaway for me about that conversation was the belief and the confidence that Blue Water sees in a development like Novaport, in a place like Sydney, and the opportunity that exists within Canada. They could go anywhere, and they can go anywhere, and they have gone in many places. So for them to invest their time and their efforts and their commitment to the development of our project... I think says a lot. And I think Brian added a really great perspective and a lot of credibility around why Novaport and how this actually can work and will work here and the confidence that he sees in the industry. I think another key takeaway for me is Chief Terry Paul's vision as he sees it. This is a long game for all of us and it is for him and it has been for Albert. There's no quick wins on this, but I think the conversation for me really solidified the commitment of everyone, especially Chief Terry and Albert, to the file and their confidence in the industry and the relationship they have with key stakeholders like the province, with each other, with the community. This is not about anybody making a buck. This is about legacy. This is about creating generational wealth. This is about bringing Indigenous business partners to the table alongside non-Indigenous business leaders, having a common shared vision for the multiple generations beyond us. And we're all just excited to be a part of it. This will be the catalyst of economic development and probably one of the biggest opportunities that Nova Scotia has ever seen. It's always easy to look back and be like, oh, wow, you did it. Congratulations. But no one will ever truly know what it has taken for these people and these visionaries to really lead this file and be resilient and waking up every morning with the same amount of passion, the same amount of energy to take it on. Throughout our conversation, Kathleen's passion was right at the surface. Drawing from what she's seen in the last year and a half in this job and her previous experience as the CEO of the Cape Breton Regional Chamber of Commerce, she is excited about the potential. I feel personally very confident that the moment we start building everything changes. It wakes everybody up. And we're experiencing that now, to be honest. It's unreal, like how much has happened since that March 23rd announcement in terms of people reaching out to us. And that was happening before anyway, but we're engaged. The industry is engaged with us and it's easier for them to find us as we now can speak openly about us participating in this industry. I think the economic opportunity is so enormous, it's hard to even imagine. Just the job creation alone, every job on this footprint is a new job. These jobs don't exist anywhere else within our region or community. So where are these people coming from? They're going to move here. They're going to move for opportunity. 
So what does that mean? Population growth. What is the key factor in growing economy? People. What is the key factor in fundamentally growing GDP? Global investment attracting the world, not taking the same money that's within a current economy and just circulating it, right? So I think those two buckets, it's going to grow our population, it's going to create density, and it's going to encourage, basically facilitate global investment, which ultimately will fundamentally impact the GDP growth of our province, our region, and our country. All that combined, it is the winning formula to encourage and create opportunities for small businesses that exist today to grow and expand and just thrive, be successful, but also attract new businesses as well. So new restaurants, hotels, convention centers, the growth of our airport, our, of our existing assets. You know, it's going to build communities, build subdivisions, housing. We're going to see more development, hopefully on our waterfront, more opportunities and more diversity in our housing options. So hopefully more apartment buildings and things of that nature. The expansion of programs at our institutions, Nova Scotia Community College, Cape Breton University, the opportunity for research, innovation, and development. It's going to put Cape Breton on the map like it's never has before, which is only going to support tourism and adventure tourism and ecotourism development and goes on and on. The last word from Kathleen is to the naysayers, to the skeptics who wonder if all of this is too big and too good to be true for a place like Unamagi, Cape Breton. You know, hope is not a plan, but I think taking the time to understand and ultimately believe and have trust in the potential of a place means a lot. And I wrote an op-ed a couple years ago when I was in my role at the chamber, and I basically said, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain supporting a project that will only benefit our community and our region, our province, and so on, and have all the reciprocal benefits and all the spinoff benefits that we just discussed and touched on throughout this entire conversation, everybody wins. Nobody will be left behind. So why not support this file? If somebody is listening that wants to help, Talk positively about us. Talk positively about the opportunities that exist within our province. That's a great place to start. And then beyond that, if there's anybody listening that's looking to play a role or look to Novaport as an opportunity, we're open. We're open for business. One of the greatest experiences through this entire process is meeting people from all over the world that believe in the opportunity that exists on Cape Breton Island and wants to do business here. I think we're just getting started and there's never been a more exciting time to live in the province of Nova Scotia than now. And I think it's only going to get better. So giddy up. Kathleen isn't the only one feeling this optimistic. Steve Parsons is seeing the opportunities from multiple vantage points and believes in the potential too. I'm firmly believing and supporting the development of offshore wind. I feel very confident in the offshore wind. As relates to the port development, I still maintain my confidence in the port development of Sydney. There's definitely an interest in Sydney, no question about it. I think logistically we're in the right spot. Yeah, I feel confident that the work that's being done will continue to be done. And I'm open that we can have a conversation in five or 10 years from now. I'm going to say, Michelle, remember that conversation? Well, today we're seeing a reality. And I'd love nothing more. And even my sons, I have two boys. One is Ontario working that could potentially work in this area in terms of fabrication or welding and so on and so forth. So it creates an opportunity. 
So from a personal standpoint, yeah, it could mean that my family may come home and live. And I'm sure others are thinking that way too. It's easy to be skeptical. It's easy to be cynical sometimes. A lot of that is based on history. Things didn't happen for whatever reason. So people associate one naysayer for another. But I think you've got some good qualified folks behind this development. I know uh, CBRM is behind it in terms of supporting it, what we can do. And I know the ports of Sydney through uh, the former CEO, Marlene Usher's efforts. A lot of work has been done to prep Sydney being ready for this. We got a developer. We have a contract with a developer. You just don't bail out a port in five years. It takes time, energy, effort, and money to bail out a port. In economic development, slow growth is good growth. We're not going to get the factory here that's going to provide 500 jobs in the manufacturing industry. But if it's 200 here, 100 there, 50 there, that makes up the basket. And that makes up your economic development plan. And it's not always by one or two projects as a cluster of projects. And uh, a lot of good stuff going on in Sydney. We've announced the downtown development on the waterfront. Once Marconi gets up and running, you're going to have another 2,000 people downtown every day. CBU is expanding, just announced an, an expansion there with the doctors. And look what's going on in the hospital. The government's going to drop a billion dollars worth of capital infrastructure in Sydney, Glace Bay, North Sydney. Our trade unions have never been so busy in years. And you talk to the union reps, you talk to the industry, you talk to developers. Sydney is it's happening right now. Hopefully 10 years from now, we're at a different conversation saying, wow, I'm glad we never gave up on that port. Yeah. That'll be exciting. I don't know about you, but I definitely want to be having that conversation. To stay up to date on Sydney's progress, I highly recommend you sign up for the Cape Breton Partnerships mailing list. There's a direct link right there in the show notes. The show notes also have a link to find out more about our generous sponsor, the Cape Breton Regional Municipality Regional Enterprise Network, aka CBRM REN. Next time on the Invest in Cape Breton podcast, we're exploring the transformative offshore wind and green energy projects in the Strait of Canso, an industrial powerhouse on the island's south coast. Tune in for a deep dive of what's going on in this natural deepwater port. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss it. Our theme music is Under My Skin by Glace Bay's own Elise Aaron. Invest in Cape Breton is produced by Storied Places Media, a proudly Cape Breton-owned business operated by me, Michelle Sampson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>